couple in, or not a couple. A couple is two or three or two by definition. Can it be three? So then, yeah, everyone uses that wrong. A few introductory notes, not a couple. I don't want to start off today by lying. Um, three introductory notes. One, good job, everybody, on Compassion Sunday. We had a few hundred, several hundred people um, out serving in the community, Gilroy, Hollister, in English and in Spanish. So that's all good. Second thing I wanted to draw your attention to is something that I'm involved in that we'll have... Um, the ability for you to sign up for outside. Uh, I'm involved with a ministry called Regeneration Project. We have our annual kind of forum. It's a one-day conference coming up uh, six days from now, this Saturday, October 27th in San Jose. There'll be a booth uh, outside, table outside that you could sign up if you'd like to go. Briefly about it, it's a ministry that I help uh, lead that's focused on theology, church, and mission, specifically for young people, but it's not just for young people because we want to reach the leaders and the parents and the grandparents of young people. So pretty much it's everybody, but the goal is ultimately that young people would be involved in theology, church, and mission. And so our big annual forum is coming up this year. It's in San Jose. Uh, outside we can get, I basically set up a table so we can all get a group rate. It's 15 bucks a, a ticket, and that includes lunch, so it's super cheap. It's not like a money-making endeavor. It's, it's purely to get young people there to he hear about these things. 15 bucks. That includes lunch, but I wanted to briefly share a little bit about what it'll be on. Uh, we did surveys last year from roughly 1,000 young people, asked them what they were thinking about, what were they curious about, what they had questions about, and one of the biggest things that came up was the issue of like heaven, hell, supernatural, and there's probably a good reason for that. We live in a modernist culture that has completely divorced itself from any idea of anything existing outside of the material realm. And so anything that, anything that can't be tested or quantified in like a test tube isn't real by nature. It's okay if you believe in those fairy tales, but if, if, if it's not material, if it's not physical, then by definition, it is not real. And so we'll be dealing with kind of all of those issues. And so there's some basic ones, but there's also some fun ones. I wanted to show you some of them. Satan, demons, exorcisms. This is one of the labs. And other scary sounding things. What is true and what is fiction? I'm teaching this one. End times confusion, 666, antichrist, Armageddon, the rapture and the return of the church. Ghost, reincarnation and judgment and other questions about what happens the moment we die. Angels, feather wings, harps and other happy sounding things. What is true and what is fiction? Hell, why you're going there? No. Uh, <laughs> what are the views of hell out there and your questions answered? Which way? What about people who believe other religions? Is Christianity the only way to heaven? So uh, it's a great time. I'd, I'd love to see as many of you there as, as possible. We make it incredibly cheap, so it's affordable. You get lunch with it. It's San Jose. So if you're interested, you want to get a ticket for that, we'll be, you can do that right after church. There's a table outside. You'll see a little regen poster thing. You can go do that. Or you could just sign up on your phone. Not during the sermon. <laughs> if you want to sign up on your phone, not during the sermon, enter coupon code SVCC to get the group rate. I should get a cut on that. I don't. <laughs> I get 10%. Also, I would appreciate prayers in addition to Regen coming up this Saturday. I'm doing the Spiritual Emphasis Week at Valley Christian Schools for the entire week. Um, so I think it's like 2,000 students or something like that. So in addition to all the, the stuff going on at the church, there'll be 
four messages for junior hires and additional four for high schoolers during Valley Christian Spiritual Emphasis Week. So appreciate your prayers for the students there. Um, Oftentimes going to a private school is a a wonderful experience. Uh, The danger of that is you can somewhat become inoculated to the gospel. You think you've you've heard all of it before. And I'm not knocking private schools because we support private schools here, but there's sometimes when you grow up hearing Christian truth nonstop, you, you think you know it all. And just because you know certain truths about the Bible doesn't mean you've had a genuine encounter with the risen Christ. So that's, that's the goal. Okay, James. How many of you have James as like your favorite book in the Bible? I knew there would be some. So we're starting James, gonna be several week series going through James verse by verse. And I knew there would be some people say, this is my favorite book. Which is interesting because James just tells you the whole way through how you're not good enough. And so it's like, there's certain people who are like, yeah, amen, that's not true. I believe good. Even the demons believe. Where am I at? I was like, good. How many of these top three? Top three, top three, top three, five, okay. You, you were there? Top three. It's all these wonderful, nice people who raised their hand too. It's none of the, none of the grouchy folk love this book. Okay. So James, rather than give you a big introduction to this incredible book, I'm just going to start going by verse 1, and all the things we need to know about it in an introductory sense will just rise to the surface. So, James, chapter 1, verse 1. James, a servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. Greetings. All right, so he's talking about Jesus Christ. So are we in Old Testament or New Testament? New Testament. Now, some of you lifelong Christians goes, that's an easy one, no-brainer. You have to remember, God is still at work, and new people are coming to the faith. And what you come to the faith with in this culture is very little knowledge. So what's the difference between Old Testament and New Testament? So basically, this is an easy shortcut. It's, it's an oversimplification, but it'll help. When Jesus Christ is born, when he's born and after New Testament, before he's born, Old Testament. So you know you're in the New Testament, and you get introduced to this guy named James writing to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. What are the 12 tribes in the dispersion? This is a kind of common way in the first century to refer to Jewish people who have been scattered across the Roman Empire. Why have they been scattered? Number of reasons. One of the biggest ones is persecution. One of the reason, other reasons is just wanting to do your faith outside an area where you have more freedom to do it. So you have a person named James writing to Jewish Christians. Now, we're so early on in the first century that even the idea of a Christian hasn't fully developed. These Jewish people would probably see themselves as Jews who've accepted Jesus as the Messiah. They're still going to synagogue at this point. It's like Christianity hasn't even developed. This is like first on the ground level stuff. So what's this guy named James who's writing to these Messianic Jewish people across the Roman Empire? James doesn't sound like a Jewish name. Why would, why would Jews, Messianic Jews, be listening to some Gentile from some faraway place? Some interesting things with the name James. It's not James. He's not James. James is a transliteration of a transliteration of a transliteration, which means uh, it's been translated so many times to different languages, this is what we use in English to describe this name. But James is taken from a Greek term in the New Testament, Iakobos. And that is taken from the Hebrew term, Yaakov. 
So we're talking about a guy named Yaakov. Does that sound Jewish? Yes. So there is a Jewish leader in the early church writing to Messianic Jewish Christians who have been scattered for various reasons across the empire. Now, Yaakov appears in the Old Testament. James doesn't. There's no James in the Hebrew Scripture and Torah. But there is a Yaakov. And Yaakov is the name in the Old Testament, Jacob. Now, for those of you who've been Christians for a long time, who's Jacob in the Old Testament? Think about this. He's the son of Isaac, son of Abraham. Jacob has how many sons, and how are they significant? He gives birth to, he doesn't give birth. His super dysfunctional pagan polygamous family gives birth to the 12 tribes of Israel. So in the Old Testament, there's Jacob, whose name is changed by God to Israel because he is the father of the 12 tribes of Israel. So Old Testament, Jacob, father of the 12 tribes of Israel. New Testament, you have almost this spiritual father, Yaakov, Jacob, writing to the 12 tribes of Israel who have been scattered across the empire. And so he's sort of writing to them as this fatherly figure. James, at this point, Yaakov, is the leader of the Jerusalem church. So think of this as a leader, a pillar in the early Christian movement when it just starts getting going. And he's writing almost like as a fatherly figure to give wisdom to his fellow Messianic Jewish Christians who believe Jesus is the Messiah. Now, don't get it twisted. It's not just that this is for Jews in the first century. This is a wisdom piece of literature, and the wisdom applies both to Jews and non-Jews for the entire span of history. It's ancient wisdom. He's writing directly to Jews, but the wisdom is applied to us all. Another interesting thing, he identifies himself as a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, in the New Testament, there's several people named James or Yahov. And if you get into deep into the history, you can eliminate some of the James and try to figure out which James this is. Long story short, the James who wrote the book of James and is the leader of the Jerusalem church in the first century is not one of the 12 disciples, James. This is the half-brother of Jesus, James. There's all kinds of controversy, like how he can be the half-brother of of Jesus. Protestants typically just say that after Jesus was born, Mary and Joseph went on to be a normal married couple, had sex, and had more kids. And in the gospel accounts, it talks about Jesus' brothers and sisters. What does it say, by the way, about Jesus' brothers and sisters' view of Jesus? They say he's crazy. This guy's a nutcase. Imagine, I mean, imagine if you, you grew up with big brother Jesus Christ, son of the living God. I mean, like, you just don't compete. You're always like, man, Yaakov gets B minuses. Jesus gets A plus. It's clearly Mary's favorite. Mom's always thought he was special in some unique way. (laughs) So he's the half-brother of Jesus. Thinks he's crazy. But something happens that radically changes James' life. He becomes not only a Christian, but a leader in the early Christian movement. James encounters the risen, resurrected Jesus, and it changes everything. 
Now, what's interesting about his introduction is he doesn't mention that. How many of you, if you were writing a letter to people, like, and you're going to list some things, you know, you're going to list some good things, establish some credibility and authority. How do we introduce people? Like, when we have guest speakers here, apologetics, oh, so-and-so has two PhDs and has written five books, and da-da-da-da. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes in the dispersion whatever biological or family connection James has, his greatest connection is that he's a sinner saved by grace, and now he's a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes and the dispersion. Now, anything else we know about this guy named James? History tells us that he had a nickname. He was called James the Just, which is awesome. Imagine if, like, people gave you that nickname or, like, any nickname that was followed by a noun or adjective that was, like, positive. Isaac the Amazing. <laughs> Drew Dowler the Wonderful One. Hey, great. James the Just. Like most of us, it's like Isaac the Grouchy One. It's like bad stuff. They called him the Just One because he was that committed to living biblical truth. They also said he had knees like a camel. So I had to bring a picture of it because I was like, what are they trying to say? Knees like a cow. It was said that James prayed so much, and when he prayed, he would always be on his knees, that his knees developed calluses and were rough because he prayed so much. So you have this dude who grew up hanging out with Jesus, thought he was a nutcase, but then is radically transformed by the gospel. He spent his life hearing the teaching and wisdom of Jesus. His nickname is the just one, and he is known as having calluses on his knees because he was praying to God so much. When that man decides to write a letter, you think we might, we might want to pay attention to what he has to say. Hence, the need for the book of James. Let's dig in. James, chapter 1, verse 2 through 4. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Now, quick introductory note says, count it all joy, my brothers. It is not just talking to his brothers literally or just like the male population. In Greek, there's a, there's a long reason we, we don't need to get into. You just take my word for it. When the Greek language uses a term like brothers to a general audience. It's talking about everyone who's there, men and women alike. So don't, when you hear brothers in the New Testament, don't just think he's talking about like his crew or like his family or just the men. This is a general term for everyone who's reading this letter. Count it all joy, my brothers and sisters, when you meet trials of various kinds. That's interesting. When you meet trials... Not if, right? Not if, when. There is a Christian assumption that believers will have suffering in their life. That's why there's so much nonsense that's out there. Most of the time you hear it on TV where Christian preachers just, I don't even want to call them Christian. People just say, oh, if you have enough faith, God's going to protect you from everything. He'll bless you. He'll give you riches. Just send me your $10 check. Ah, $10 check's not enough. They want like a $100 check. 
you know, like prosperity preaching, it's nonsense, it's garbage. James doesn't say if you face trials, it's when. And then he describes what type of trials they'll be. Various kinds. Why? Well, because the historical situation in this case is there's probably Jews who have become messianic. They believe Jesus is the Messiah. And Jews who do not believe Jesus is the Messiah at this point are starting to contend with this faction group. And this will bubble into something that gets out of hand and eventually Messianic Jews get expelled from the synagogues and more severe persecution happens. But at this point, there's just contention. So that's the historical context for trial and tribulation. But James also just doesn't want to address the histori- this one type of thing that can happen to a Messianic Jewish Christian. It's talking about all trials, whatever you may face, various trials, whether that's physical persecution, emotional hurt, whether it's the losing of a job, it's the losing of a loved one, having a tough time with your kids, you're getting old and your body doesn't work, various kinds of trials. When you meet trials of various kinds, count it joy. Why? For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. It's gonna be a theme in James, how to deal with suffering. It's a theme of the New Testament, really. But there's two things or, or two aspects to suffering that James will have us focus on throughout this book. And there's a a present hope for suffering and a future hope for suffering. The future hope for suffering is this. No matter how many tears you cry, there will come a day where God will wipe away every tear from your eye. No matter what you suffer in this life, there will come a day where God will make right, will bring justice to the world. Suffering will end evil will end, injustice will end. So whatever you go through in this present life, there is a hope that there is a judge who will come and make it right. That's why people who, who look at like the judgment of God as a bad thing, typically those are people who haven't suffered under oppression. If, if you've been in a concentration camp, you long for the day that that type of suffering ends for some good judge to make it right. So whatever suffering you go through in this lifetime, there's a future hope. And Christians in the present are called to look to the future and cling to that hope. And when you do that, you can go through a lot because you know your present sufferings are temporary and glory is eternal. There's a future aspect to Christian suffering. There's also the present aspect, and that's what James just talked about. It's that it produces something in you makes you strong. It's, faith is like a muscle. It gets broken down, but when it grows back, it's stronger. If we had time, we can go around this room and we could talk about things that hit us in life that we didn't think we'd be able to, to maintain faith through. It's not like that got 100% better or you, now you look at it with joy, but that muscle was broken down and strengthened in a way. That's how faith is. Suffering produces something in you. I could tell you some of the most powerful testimonies are when people come up and they share their life story and you know, you just knew them as so-and-so at church and then they share their story and you had no idea that there was literally 30 years of living hell in their life and every bad thing that you can imagine happened to them and somehow God kept getting them back up and they go and give God praise anyway. It does something to you when you hear that stuff. 
like change, like it fuels you. So there's a present hope and a future hope. When you suffer in the present, it's producing something in you. It's making you harder, stronger, more mature. Then there's the future hope that God will make right of all things. There's a saying, uh, some, have you ever heard the saying, so-and-so is so heavenly minded there of no earthly good. Raise your hand if you've heard that. Okay. A lot of, most people, 60, 70%. And it's this idea that, hey, some Christians get so focused on the future of heaven that they're, they're not caring anything about earthly good. And in a sense, there's, there, there's some type of truth, truth to that. Uh, C.S. Lewis, though, would say, hey, look, when you truly understand for heaven and you're living for heaven, those are the very people who make the, the biggest difference in the present. There's a famous quote by author C.S. Lewis. He says, aim at heaven and you will get earth thrown in. Aim at earth and you will get neither. In other words, live as if heaven matters and is the ultimate reality of your life. That will help you endure present suffering. That'll help you be more charitable with your time and money. It'll help you care about people who are hurting and suffering now all the more because all of these things take on extra meaning. The full, everyone knows, not everyone, a lot of people know the, that, that particular line, but here's the full context. If you read history, you will find that Christians who did most for the present world were just the ones who thought most of the next. The apostles themselves who set foot set on foot the conversion of the Roman Empire, the great men who built the Middle Ages, the English evangelicals who abolished the slave trade, all left their mark on earth precisely because their minds were occupied with heaven. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so ineffective in this. Aim at heaven and you will get earth thrown in. Aim at earth and you will get neither. In other words, strive for heaven and this present life with all of its brokenness will be worth living. If you only live for this world now, guess what? You'll miss out on heaven and this life will be miserable. You can gain the whole world and still lose your soul. You ever meet people who they only live for themselves? Are they happy? No. It doesn't work that way. John Piper, a famous pastor, goes, I suppose there are some Christians who are too heavenly-minded, too future-minded. And he goes, the problem is I've never met one. The only people I meet in churches are people who are too worldly, who live for the now, who have no understanding of the future, what God intends to do for the world. It's like, that's convicting, right? We have a different perspective on suffering. Now, when you've been hit with suffering, it feels like, you know, the ground's taken out from underneath you, right? It's like, I can't explain anything. When, when you're hit with something rough in life, nothing makes sense. It doesn't make sense. The, the ground is gone. You don't know north, south, east, west, left, right. It's just confusing. Reality is shattering. So James goes on after talking about suffering. He says, in context to your suffering, if any of you lacks wisdom, wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord for he is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Now just for clarification, remember I talked about brothers um, being for both men and women. So this last part, verse eight, he's a double-minded man. 
ladies, does not only apply to men. You can be a double-minded woman as well. What's going on here? This is one of those verses that gets hijacked by sometimes well-meaning Christians, most of the time charlatans. But there's this, it, it almost sounds as if, if, if you lack anything, just pray, and if you have 100% faith with zero doubt, God will give it to you. And some of you, by your own experience, you know you've prayed for something with all the faith in the world, and you trusted God with all the trust in the world, and the prayer was still not answered. Or some people would say it was answered with a no, but what it says here is that he's going to give it to you. So there's a way to manipulate this text and take it out of its context to abuse it. God doesn't give you everything you want, and thank God he doesn't. But what does he do? What is he saying? If you are suffering and you lack wisdom, God wants to give you wisdom. He's a generous God. And so there's this image of, of, a, of a father who just wants to give generously, and he wants to give you wisdom generously. So ask in faith, but don't doubt when you're asking in faith. Now, part of the hiccup comes here with our understanding of faith, and we've talked about this in the past, but in modern English, the word faith is, it carries, it doesn't carry the nuance that the word faith does both in the Old Testament and the New Testament. It's Hebrew and Greek, Greek equivalent. So faith in the, the, the kind of modern era in English means like believing in things that you shouldn't or believing things that are impossible are now possible or believing in things that are likely not to happen. For instance, you could say, now that LeBron James is on the Lakers, I have faith that they'll win an NBA championship. That's believing something that is stupid. <laughs> it's dumb. But you go, no, I'm a Laker fan. I got faith in my team. No, that's dumb. It's dumb. I'm a Laker. I, if you know me, I'm a Laker fan. But that, I, I don't have that type of faith. Why? Because that's stupid faith. <laughs> it doesn't work that way. So when we use faith in English, oftentimes it means mere intellectual affirmation or like believing in a fairy tale ending. Now, there's components of that sometimes with the biblical definition of faith, but it's, it's significantly more nuanced. So again, we have to look at it through the biblical lens. There's a movie um, who il that, that illustrates this, this point of what I'll call what the modern American thinks of faith. This is a bad view of faith. Now, this is a good movie. It's one of three movies. Some might say it's the greatest trilogy Got you, huh? <laughs> there is sound on this file. Yeah, apparently there's not sound. <laughs> you know it. This is the leap of faith one. Okay, so what the dude says, Han Solo says, is <laughs> he's reading something, and Han Solo says, like, at the head of the lion, 
one must take the leap. And then that's his, Indy, believe, you could do it. (laughs) Believe, no, just go walk off a cliff and you won't fall. That's dumb. (laughs) That's dumb. That's not the way it works. Okay? And so what he does is, look, look, he's going to take a leap of faith. There can be miracles when you believe. Oh, oh, oh. And then watch as he takes a couple steps. Who meets him? Kylo Ren. (laughs) I'm sorry, Father. So he walks across, okay? Now, in the movie, the way it's set up is in order to walk across, there's there's no bridge, but you have to take a leap of faith and walk across the bridge, okay? Now, in a sense, this is what people often think faith means in the Bible, when you don't see anything, just do it. Now, there's, again, there's a sense in which God will call you to do that sometimes. When there doesn't seem like there's a way forward, you trust God. But the biblical definition of faith, is, it comes from the Greek word pistis in its noun form and pistio in the verb form. And faith, it's, it's multidimensional. It means intellectual affirmation, of course. You have to affirm something to, in order to believe it. But it also has this sense of allegiance, When the early Christians preached the gospel and faith in Jesus Christ, those who heard it said, these Christians preach that there's another king who's not Caesar. You see how that works. You say, you need faith in Jesus Christ, and then people go, these Christians are saying, you you have to have another king but Jesus. Because faith had a sense in which you were pledging allegiance into the one you had faith in. Allegiance. It also had a sense of trust. I trust this person. I have an active trust. When you get married, you you pledge to be faithful to your spouse. You don't just say, I have faith in you, and that means I, on a cognitive intellectual level, I believe in your existence. Your faithfulness, it's an active trust. It's an allegiance. So when James is talking about not being a double-minded person. He's saying you have to have trust and allegiance into. It's not saying don't ever have intellectual doubts because we, we all do those types of things. We should overcome those and base our thinking on how God has proven himself faithful in the past. However, this is about pistuo, faithfulness, faithing, in Jesus. There's a verse by Jesus that explains this perfectly. Jesus says, you can't serve God and money. Why? Because you can't have two masters. You either serve the one and hate the other. This is what this phrase double-minded means. You can't say, I'm trusting in Jesus, but then trust in the world for some other type of deliverance. The person who does that is like a person tossed between the waves. They're a double-minded person. And the context, again, is wisdom and suffering. And you never know when God gave you wisdom. Why? Because you could say, I prayed for wisdom in my suffering. I don't think I got it. God didn't give me any wisdom. There's a difference between feeling wise and actually receiving wisdom. It's incredibly important. You could pray for wisdom, but there's still a difference between feeling wise and receiving wisdom. And the people who are the most wise that I've ever met in my entire life do not feel or come across at first very wise. 
James goes on, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass, its flowers fall and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. This is uh, one of the most beautiful sections in all of scripture. Jesus says, let the lowly one Think about his exaltation and let those who are high and already exalted think about their lowering. You see it? Low gets brought up, high gets brought low. This is some of the best news of scripture. Why? Because every single person in this room falls into one of those two categories. Some of you were lowly. Some of you still are lowly in the world's eyes. Maybe you were brought up poor, uneducated, you dropped out of high school kind of feel dumb when talking around smart people. Maybe you're a girl, your dad wasn't around, and so you got the attention you needed from, from boys in high school. You developed a reputation, one of those types of girls. And you'd carry the shame of that around with you, the shame of being poor or promiscuous or a nobody or a person without many friends. What does the gospel tell you? The gospel says, despite all of that stuff, my son, my daughter, you are treasure. And I die for you. You're treasure. And on the opposite news end, there's good news for those who are exalted. Maybe you came from a great family, always had your act together. Straight A's. Good college, good job. Great house, great car, you got the boat that Isaac covets. <laughs> got it all. Never got a speeding ticket. What does the gospel tell you? The greatest deeds of your life, the things that you think are so good and make you so awesome are but rags before a perfect standard. There's not enough zeros in your bank account that can make you worthy of Jesus. You need to understand your true place before him. You need to understand you too are in need of grace. So the exalted gets brought low to know they're just a beggar like the lowly person. And you see how that works. Different people need different types of messages. The gospel's like a kaleidoscope. There's only one gospel, but it says something different to different people. Like if you're talking to someone that's full of shame and they hate themselves, they think they're the biggest failure, the thing to say is probably not, oh yeah, you're right. Totally the biggest failure. I thought I was. That's why I hang around with you. Make me, you make me feel good. No. What does Jesus tell the woman at the well who's gone through multiple husbands? I can give you living water. Why don't you be the first one to become a Christian and go tell all those people who've made fun of you in your community about me? Let's do that way. And God has reached out to some of you just like that. And then there's some of you and this is my personality bent, um, where God needs to remind you just how horrible of a person you are. And I know that like, that's not cool for like to say in the modern world how horrible you are. No, I needed to hear that. Happened to me when I kind of first became a Christian, then five years after that, through a number of things that were happening in my life, I was about 22 or 23, I came face to face with like the absolute wretchedness of my sin. 
And I'm not kidding, I, I cried for weeks. It's like broke, like, because you think you're something special or and you just, God's like, and then you come out of it going, I now recognize the truth, but God still has given me grace. How great that grace must be. Whoever's forgiven much, loves much. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Okay, two things. One, God doesn't tempt you. There's testing periods in our life, but there's no temptation that comes from God. Secondly, where does the majority of temptation in your life come from, according to James? Yourself. You know, there's, depending upon what church, there's different, like, tribes and churches. Like, this church is non-denominational, so we have, like, people all across the spectrum. But some of you grew up or came from churches where, like, when anything bad happened, or when you did anything bad happen, or when the church didn't do something right, it was someone's fault. You know who it was? The devil's fault. Some of you grew up in everything, uh, Satan, you know. You got a speeding ticket. Oh, Satan was getting me that day. I was angry. And what does James say? Satan didn't have nothing to do with this. It's the little devil you are. The evil, and it comes from your own desire. Each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. The devil doesn't even know your name. He's got like rookies of rookies of rookies who are assigned to you. And they fall asleep on the job. Why do you say it's your own evil desire? Then listen to this imagery, the last line. This is, it's creepy. It's dark. It's dark imagery. In verse 14, th this desire that comes from us is the language that's used is both predator prey, and it also has like sexual overtones. Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it's conceived, child is formed gives birth to sin. And what happens if you keep feeding that baby? You feed that desire, that sin grows up, and it kills you. It brings death. So James says, you look at people who have, you know, like you hear stories of like a, a pastor who was having multiple affairs or something. Where did that come from? There was desires. And rather than killing those desires, it conceived. Those desires conceived and gave birth to sin, and that sin was fed and fed and fed and fed till it brought forth death. So James is, is very concerned with how you view temptation. It doesn't come from God. It mostly comes from yourself, although Scripture does say there's different types of temptations, but most of the time it's coming from your own evil desires, and if you don't deal with it, it will bring forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that, he should be a kind, that, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Yes, she's going to pass, for, pass out communion as we conclude. At the end of this, so, so the outline is this. You're going to suffer 
when you suffer, know that there's a future hope and a present hope. In that condition, pray for wisdom. Trust and give your allegiance to Jesus in the midst of suffering, asking for this wisdom. And out of that, you are to trust in the good character of God. And this is one of the most beautiful images in Scripture. How do you picture God? What's your image of him? Is he angry? Is he he vengeful? James concludes this section by trust in this God. Verse 17, every good gift and every perfect gift is from God. Coming down from who? The Father of lights. When you picture God, do you see the Father of lights? A loving Father who wants to give generously to you who wants you to be wise. So before we take communion, I want to do an exercise. It has to do with wisdom. Because James talks about various trials. I'm going to give us a couple minutes right before we take communion to pray to God in silence, individually. This is what, this is what I'd like it to look like. What trials are there in your life right now? And I know for some of you, there's great big trials. For some of you, they're very small. But James talks about various kinds of trials. What are the biggest trials in your life right now? And think about them. What are they? They could be something as simple as, man, my, my relationship with my kids is bad, or it's finances, or it's physical health. Your body's deteriorating. It's sadness, it's grief, it's loneliness. Whatever it may be, what's the trial in your life right now? And then we're going to do what scripture tells us to do. We ask God for wisdom on how to navigate that trial. Because when they're suffering, sometimes you don't know up from down, left to right, north to south, east to west. So what is the trial in your life? And specifically ask God for wisdom on how to navigate that issue. Give you a few minutes to talk to God and pray through that.